Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emmanuelmanning.com. Thanks and enjoy the sermon. We're going to be looking at this morning Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. Romans 6, 12 through 14. So follow along uh, as I read this text. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Rome um, under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. In this text, Paul is trying to get these Christians, and that's who this text is written to. This morning, if uh, you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus, what you're doing is listening in as an apostle talks to Christians. And I pray that you'll learn some things and hopefully learn about Christianity a little bit more. And I hope ultimately you'll follow Jesus. Uh, And there will be moments where I'll be talking to you, but... uh, this morning, we're, we're talking to believers. And Paul is getting them to try and to believe something that doesn't appear to be true. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but there's these pictures on the internet where you have to look at them twice because when you first look at them, some don't seem right. So this, that's two horses. That's not a mutant. That poor lady was just asleep on the train, and I would be that guy just waiting for the right moment. Uh, So that's a lady asleep, her head down. Dogs are good about this. That puppy is ready to go, man. I love it. So at first it appeared, what, that dog has a weird head. Oh, that's a puppy. Um... Whoa. Was there a warp speed button on this remote? Maybe we we weren't supposed to see that one. I've heard people called that before, haven't you? To me, this was the hardest one to work out. But what's going on in this section of Romans is Paul is trying to get these Christians to realize that against appearances, they had died with Christ and had been raised with him. Now, this is Easter, and you may think, well, Pastor Drew, there was nothing about 
re- the word resurrection wasn't in that passage. Why, why are you preaching this passage when there's nothing really about resurrection in it? But there's everything about resurrection in this. Look at verse 12. Let not sin, therefore what? Reign. We don't, we don't think that when Jesus was raised from the dead that it was just some way of God showing what he could do. The resurrection of Jesus was God's declaration that Jesus is king over all things. Back in Romans 1, verse uh, 4, it says that by virtue of the resurrection, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power. Son of God was a technical term almost for a king back in those days, uh, which, interestingly enough, you know that weird passage in Genesis where it says the sons of God laid with the daughters of men? That means kings, all right? That's not some ultra weird passage. But anyway, the sons of God, Jesus was declared to be king over all things in power by virtue of the resurrection. And so this is a resurrection passage because the Bible says that there's something that's going to be reigning over you and it may as well be the one who actually is king. Uh, And so reign is there. These passions uh, like can't make you obey them anymore. That we're to be presenting our instruments uh, for not to unrighteousness, but we're to present them to God as those who've been brought from death to life. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. The question isn't whether we're under something or not. The question is, what are we under? And by virtue of his resurrection from the dead, the Bible says that in God's court and in God's eyes, Uh, And according to God's calculation, that when Jesus died and when he was buried and when he was raised from the dead and declared to be king over all things, that mysteriously his people were in him so that they were there being crucified. They were there buried and now they've been raised up so that they're under the dominion, the, the, the great reign of Jesus instead of the terrible reign of sin. There's so much in our day political turmoil. And I, goodness gracious, don't want to get into that. I get into that enough. Except to say one of the reasons that there's turmoil is because we know that the person who leads us really affects us. And so we we don't like when the person who leads us uh, is doing things that we feel like are going to affect us negatively. We just know that whoever is in charge of us and over us affects us. And as Christians, one of the reasons that we should really, really avoid the fire coming out of our mouths, political dialogue of our own day and time is because we're under Jesus, so it's going to work out fine. Which is why most of us probably need like a, a political nap. Because it is true that the one we're under affects us and we're under Jesus. And so Paul is trying to get these Christians to live as if what is true is true. 
You might be a believer in here this morning saying, man, I might believe in Jesus, but I know too many Christians. And the Apostle Paul would go, yeah, I get it. And I would go, yeah, I get it. And every Christian in here would go, yeah, we get it. Paul is here trying to tell these Christians, live according to the thing that's true about you. And here's what Paul says is true about you if you're a believer in Jesus now. That because he's been raised from the dead, he is now your king, so you're not under the dominion of sin anymore. Which means you no longer have to obey sin. Whether it's a religious sin, whether it's the kind of thing we normally think of as sin, the Bible says that we used to be under sin's dominion, and now we're no longer under sin's dominion. And before we kind of get to the point, let me tell you why you're no longer under sin's dominion if you're a Christian, and it's really interesting. Look at verse 14. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under what? But under grace. By law there, it means God's old covenant law. The reason that sin doesn't have dominion over you is because now you've been freed from the law as the way to be right with God. And we really need to understand this if we're going to understand the gospel. A lot of people, Christians included, think that God gave his law almost like a ladder so that if you climb up it, um, you, you'll get to heaven. The law, obeying the law, right? So don't drink, cuss, smoke, or chew, and don't hang out with girls that do, right? Uh, obey the Sabbath. Keep it holy. All these, like, we think that God gave his law in order to give us a ladder to climb up to him. But because we were under the dominion of sin, when God gave us his law, what happened was not that anybody climbed up it, but that basically that law showed their wicked hearts. And this is the test we always like take here. When you see a sign that says, do not walk on the grass, come on, what's the first thing you want to do? I want to walk on that grass, man. It's quicker that way. I don't want to be inconvenienced. And who's telling me not to walk on the grass anyway? All right, possibly some guy in the corporate office, but some sniveling dude who doesn't have the right. And the same thing happens with us when we look at God's law. He says, don't commit adultery. Now, God said don't commit adultery because he loves us. And adultery wrecks people, doesn't it? But we, we see don't commit adultery, and you're like, what's he holding back? Hmm? Because sin is over us, and we think the law is the way to relate to God. And so the law, actually, instead of being the way to relate to God, actually makes sin worse. And so Jesus comes along, and it's not that Jesus doesn't care whether or not you commit adultery. It's just that Jesus knows that if you're going to relate to God, it's not going to be on the basis of law. It's going to be on the basis of his death, burial, and resurrection. And what Jesus will do is by his grace, as you depend upon him, he'll give you the strength to live in a way that pleases God and not think you have to come to God on the basis of, of law. 
And so Jesus is declared king. That means that sin no longer is the ruling force in the world. And Jesus has changed the way to get to God so that it's no longer what we think of as law keeping. It's now just being in Christ because Jesus is the one who climbed the ladder for us. It often seems to this world that Christians are being very limited and hard-nosed when we say Jesus is the only way to heaven. Here's what we're saying. Jesus is the only one who can fix this mess. And he's the only one that got it right. And nobody else can fix this mess and nobody else can get it right. It's not that we're trying to limit anything so much as we're just trying to say he's the answer. He got it right. And so we don't relate to God on the basis of law. We relate to God on the basis of what Jesus did for us. And if we're in Jesus, that means that we're not under the dominion of sin anymore. And that we don't have to live in sin anymore. What Jesus is saying and what Paul is saying here is that we need to have the resurrection promises of Jesus being lived out in our lives on a regular basis. So that people will believe that what Jesus guaranteed is true. Do you know what Jesus guaranteed by his resurrection? He guaranteed the resurrection of all that trust in God. And he guaranteed the renewal of heaven and earth. So my, my church knows this because we spend a lot of time teaching on this. And I'm going to get nerdy for a minute because I don't know any other way to be. Okay? Christians think more like Plato than they do Paul. Because what Plato, you know, they're not Plato. Plato, the philosopher, said that flesh is bad, material is bad. All this material stuff was made by some sort of like sub-demonic God anyway. And what we're all trying to do is escape this terrible flesh and to go up into the realm of the forms, up into the ideal, up into the ethereal. And so Christians have bought into that, and we believe things like the ultimate destination is heaven. And we'll be sitting on clouds playing harps. And uh, because of that, we don't need to care about this earth. We don't need to care about the body. We don't need to care about Notre Dame, right? I just love the other day. Bless us Americans. When the fires at Notre Dame began, they had to tweet out, we're not talking about Notre Dame University. It's like, bless. But anyway, uh, when, when Christians are not Platonists. We don't think that God's ultimate goal is to get rid of all this nasty stuff. Like Shakespeare said, to shuffle off this mortal coil. What Christians believe is that when God made stuff, he actually really liked it. That's why he said in Genesis, this is good right? Uh, this is good. Now, it was marred by sin, and it's in terrible shape because of sin, uh, but what Jesus did is he came and he lived the first truly, fully human life, and he was resurrected in a body, and because of that, God one day is going to resurrect and re-embody everybody who trusts in Jesus, and God's going to remake the heavens and the earth, and we're going to live forever on the earth being truly human in a good world like he intended us. To live. And so things like Notre Dame and jazz and Bach and bodies will be there. Just all the sin will be burned off. And Jesus guaranteed this by being raised from the dead. This is a Christian hope. Uh, and so heaven, as we say here often, is just like a bus terminal. 
We go there, but that's not the final destination. The final destination is back here, living as we were always intended to live as embodied human beings, learning and growing in a good world that God made. And you may think that sounds crazy, but every hope you have centers on something like that. And the Bible says that Jesus guaranteed it. And so as Christians, what we're supposed to be doing is living out that resurrected life now so that the world can see what God plans to do through Jesus so people will get on board. And that's what, y'all with me? And that's what Paul is trying to convince these people of here that they don't need to let sin reign in their body because they're under a new king and the world is under a new king and we're the ones who are supposed to demonstrate it by living out powerfully righteous lives Instead of same old lives, and when I say powerfully righteous lives, I don't mean that every Christian is supposed to be changing the world. Just in our day in and our day out lives, because how many people in the world have actually ever changed the world? Like four? Right? And everybody, you got to go out there and change the world. You can't change the world. Just be good. Right? And as we're good, like Jesus, then the world is sort of slowly changed as each location is changed. Uh, that's how the world gets better, not by you changing the world, because so many of us are going to go out there thinking we're going to change the world, and we can't even change ourselves, and then we give up hope. So that resurrection life that we're supposed to live is just lives that look like Jesus in the small little places that we are. To wake up hope in people that Jesus can actually fix this mess. And so how are we as Christians supposed to do that? Well, what Paul tells us is two things. First is this. When sin calls to us, we got to stop reporting for duty. Now, the reason I put it in those terms it's because this idea of presenting your members as instruments, instruments was an interesting word in the Greek, which means something like weapons. Okay? And, and we're not supposed to present our members, that is our bodies, our body parts. We're not supposed to present our bodies to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But oftentimes when sin calls to us, don't we report for duty? Because that's what we're used to. Now, here's that same old voice again, and I, it used to bully me and make me obey, and now I think it can still make me obey. Have you guys ever heard of feral children? You know what feral children are? The feral children are children who are maybe separated from their families and raised in the wild, like, Tar like Tarzan is the mythical feral child, separated from his family, raised by gorillas, right? Eight. Aren't apes gorillas? Am I? Anyway, so uh, the first recorded feral child is an English uh, person, well, a, Bel a Bel person from Belgium named John of Liege. Uh, in 1644, he fled into the woods at the age of five to escape enemy soldiers during a religious war. While his family and the rest of the village returned to their homes after uh, danger, uh, young John was too terrified to come out of hiding, so he struck off alone in the depths of the forest where he survived for 16 years on roots and wild berries. He finally returned to society at 21 when he was caught trying to steal food from a local farm. It says by then he was reportedly naked and all overgrown with hair. 
And apparently that happens when you have a certain kind of diet. All right? He had quite forgotten the use of all language. Most astonishingly of all, his years in the bush had let him develop a dog-like sense of smell, allowing him to sniff out food from great distances. When he was caught, he was slowly brought back into civilization. We're feral children. We've been living out in the wild for so long uh, that when we're re-civilized as Christians, the, the call of the wild still has power over us. Imagine if John of Liege wasn't just an, a, a regular boy, but he was the heir to the throne. And every time the wild called again, he felt that pull, not realizing, no, now you're a king meant for better things. This is how we are we used to be trapped under sin. And when it calls again, we answer. We feel compelled. And what Paul is trying to say is if you want to live out the resurrection in this world, when sin calls for duty, you've got to stop answering because you don't have to. You really, really don't have to stay bitter at your mom and dad or bitter at whoever it is that did something to you. You don't have to look at porn again. You don't have to lie again. You don't have to do these things. Now, will we, to some degree, continue to do these things because we live in a sinful world and sometimes we answer the call of sin? Thank you, other elder. The rest of you are liars. <laughs> well, at least your pastors know. No, I would never do that. You do that. But what Paul is saying here is that if we're going to demonstrate to the world that Jesus' resurrection is true, we need to stop answering to sin because in Jesus, we died to it. And so Paul says at the end of verse 11, he says, So, so also you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in, in Christ Jesus. That is, you've got to do the calculation and you've got to realize that because Jesus is raised from the dead and you're in him, you actually can be free from the sin that you know is killing you. Second, no, long, we're not, no longer are we to answer the call of the bully sin when it calls. Secondly, we're no longer to offer our body parts in service to sin, but to use them as instruments of righteousness. Here's a David Foster Wallace quote I've used before that bears repeating. Because Paul doesn't say here, you need to present your members to God as instruments of righteousness as opposed to just living any old way you please. He doesn't say that, does that? He says, you need to present your members as instruments to righteousness to God as opposed to presenting your instruments for unrighteousness to sin. Paul assumes you serve somebody. Bob Dylan, right? Does anybody know the Bob Dylan song? You gotta serve somebody. That's the best I got right there. Bob Dylan's songs are awesome when they're sung by somebody else. Um, I don't mean to offend any Bob Dylan fans in here. Listen to what David Foster Wallace says. And for many of you know, very sadly, this is a man who killed himself not too, not too many years after he said this. 
He said, and this was at a commencement speech. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship and the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus or Allah or Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess or the four noble truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve over you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables. The skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up in front in daily consciousness. What is he saying? You need to keep up in front of you the fact that you're worshiping slash serving something. And you should worship and serve something that gives you life instead of something that gives you death and eats you alive. You got to serve somebody. You are serving someone. And Paul, the apostle, would call out to you today and say, why don't you worship Jesus? Because he really is the king and he is God. And worshiping him is the only thing that will actually give you life. And worshiping anything else may help for a season, but will ultimately leave you broken and bitter. And so since Jesus is God, Paul says here, don't offer your body parts in service to sin. Rather, offer them as instruments of righteousness. He says the same thing a little later in chapter 12 in a verse that if you grew up in church, you probably memorized. Where Paul says this, uh, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your reasonable worship. And what that word means in, in the Greek, reasonable, is Paul is saying with the reasonable part of you, you need to take the physical part of you and serve God with it. Same thing he says here in Romans 6. Take your members and present them to God as instruments of righteousness. Do you do that, Christian? Because as you do that, what you're demonstrating to the world is that Jesus is alive from the dead and he's king and he is going to make everything sad untrue. That he's the only one that can do it. He's the only one that has power. And as you and I as Christians continue to offer our instruments and our members to uh, sin for unrighteousness, we give people all the leverage they need not to believe that truth. What is the number one reason that people don't believe in Jesus? Quoted anyway. It's Christians, isn't it? They're all a bunch of what? I don't know that that's true in the main. Maybe it is. But they're on to something. 
that people would believe in Jesus if they saw his resurrection power working out in us. So how do we do that? Day in and day out, it's to realize again that all of your sin problem is a worship problem. And you're worshiping the wrong thing. And so that you and I need to take our hearts and to focus them on the Lord Jesus Christ so we can see him as he is the best we can. That is, he's the risen Lord of all. He's the one who's going to fix it all. His promises are true and better and life-giving than the promises of the world. And that if we would live presenting our bodies to him as instruments of righteousness, that he will bring great good and glory to the world. Your members being your hands, your feet, your tongue, your body. Paul says later in another letter, the body wasn't meant for sexual immorality, the body was meant for the Lord. And so we live out this resurrection power in our lives by no longer submitting to unrighteousness, but submitting to God. How are you doing with that? How are you doing? Are you, are you catching yourself worshiping other things? Or you, you believe that Jesus is king, but you're not, how this all works? Or you think he's king, but you're not presenting your members to him. You're holding on to past hurts, bitternesses, backbiting people, talking about people, getting worked up about the wrong things, watching things with your eyes you shouldn't, listening to things with your ears that you shouldn't. And by, by shouldn't, I don't mean you shouldn't do that. I mean things that don't give life. Paul here envisages our various body parts as implements to be used in the service of a master. And why not use them in the service of a good one? And yes, our present bodies will decay and die. But when they are raised, whatever work we did in the present, in the service of this Jesus, will be a part of the world that he brings into being. So Paul says, present yourselves to God as people who are alive from the dead. We can do this, and we can only do this, because Jesus did it first. Amen? And so for those of you who don't believe in Jesus, let me tell you what this whole thing is about because it gets twisted and messed up in a thousand different ways. The Bible says that the world fell in Adam. Fell in Adam. That means he stood as the great representative of the human race. And when he fell, we all fell. And that introduced sin and death into the world. So why things work against you instead of working with you. Uh, and not only did the world f fall, we fell. We, we came under the dominion of sin. We serve and worship other masters. We go after gods uh, who want our flesh. We go after gods who kill us. I had a really good friend uh, whose dad was a missionary to a people group in South America. And once a year, they had this service where they would drag images of this God around with ropes that had hooks on them, the ends of which were pierced through the skin on the back of these people. And I just think, 
That, that hurts, doesn't it? That's not good. They, they hurt themselves in wrong and weird ways in the service of this God. We, we're twisted. We worship the wrong things and therefore we do the wrong things. And all of this is because we are in sin. And when the Bible says Jesus came, Paul makes this clear in a couple of places in the New Testament that Jesus came as Adam 2.0. And that he is the head of a new race on the way to a new world that he's going to remake by virtue of the power that he has to subject all things to himself. And what he did is he lived a life of complete and utter faithfulness to God. Where we failed and where Adam failed, Jesus didn't. And so he entered into life innocent and he left life virtuous. Jesus was the only person ever who lived a life that completely and utterly pleased God. He was the only person ever who didn't deserve to die for his sins. And the scripture says that he died for the sins of those who would trust in him. He put himself forward on the cross as a substitute. That's why we celebrate Good Friday. It's Jesus going and bearing God's wrath in my place. And then the resurrection is a sign of a couple of things. Number one, it's a sign that what he did on the cross worked. Right? Paul says, if Jesus be not raised from the dead, we are of all people most to be pitied. But he is raised from the dead. And the second thing that the resurrection shows is that Jesus, God's son, God himself, being raised from the dead, is now king over all, and he's going to work everything good. And by faith, we're able to follow with his spirit in the path that he walked before us. And the scripture says, if you and I will repent of our other gods, if we'll lay aside the other things we worship, and if by faith we'll walk and follow Jesus and learn from him, uh, that he will be faithful to carry us before God's throne where we'll be declared innocent and he will make us new and he will uh, give us resurrection on that earth that he is going to make one day when he burns everything bad off of this. I'm pretty sure Marilyn Manson's music won't make it, but I think felonious monks will. Uh, you know, I'm pretty sure Walmart won't make it, but Notre Dame will. The church, not the university. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that righteous, virtuous works done in Jesus' name will make it. And everything else will be burned off when the Son of Man returns. And every rational notion of justice has some return, some reckoning. And so what the Bible is calling you to do today is to trust in him as your king and to repent from your sin and to follow him as your master. That's what Christians are supposed to do. And yes, we don't do it very well. But we are saved because we trust in him who did well for us. And because of that, we can follow in his footsteps. And so this morning, if you don't trust in Jesus, realize you're trusting in something and it is going to let you down. And because of his resurrection, we can trust that Jesus will not. 
And then we, in turn, go and live out in this world that resurrection power to show that he is going to make everything sad untrue. That's what we think about on Easter Sunday. I hope you'll join us. And Christian, I pray that by God's grace, you will begin daily, and I will begin daily, presenting our members to him as instruments of unrighteousness because in him we have been raised from the dead and we no longer need to answer the call of sin. Let's pray. Thank you.